Dr. Owens and Professor Cowling. I'd like to ask about the current understanding on how the Omicron variant spreads. What is the best way to reduce transmission? Thank you. From OTMP, this is your COVID-19 update. It is Thursday, the 17th of February, 2022. In this month's episode, we asked you, our listeners, what questions you would like put to Dr. David Owens and Professor Ben Cowling, and you answered in droves. How do we access healthcare and medicine for our children? What do we know about the long-term effects for children who are not yet eligible for vaccines? What are the known benefits and risks to a child aged under 12? My question relates to mental health. What are the chance of a lockdown? Why is the Hong Kong government still pursuing a COVID zero strategy? My question is about how the government could allocate resources to support people. Thank you. So here they are, Dr. Owens and Professor Cowling answering your questions and discussing the topics and issues that are raised around them. Well, Ben, thanks for catching up again. It's obviously been a something of a, a change in Hong Kong with the fifth wave now really well underway and established. Something of a diversion from our previous podcast, we've asked listeners to submit some questions to maybe get an idea of what people are concerned about at the moment and one of the questions we had there in the introduction is how is Omicron transmitted and and as part of that question that followed up is why are we testing sewage? I'd like to ask about the current understanding on how the Omicron variant spreads and in the light of how it spreads uh, we hear about the government's testing of sewage uh, and so on uh, in the light of the way that the Omicron most likely spreads, what is the best way to reduce transmission? Could you explain that one? Yeah, so COVID in general is spread predominantly through close contact through the air. The virus is an infection of the respiratory tract typically, and the virus comes out from infected people when they're breathing or coughing or perhaps sneezing, and it, it can stay in the air f- for at least a short period of time. Uh, it doesn't usually go a long distance through the air, but, but typically transmits at close range. And so if you're in the same place as a confirmed case, you're going to have a risk of being exposed. And I, I think the three C's are, are really an excellent way to think about risk. And that's that the risk is higher if you're in prolonged close contact, close contact with a, another case, a confirmed case. Uh, if you are in a confined space and if it's crowded that's when your risk is going to be to be relatively higher certainly the transmission is occurring through the air not only in larger droplets the ones that 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 are including ones that are large enough to see is clearly occurring through through smaller particles We've, we've known that since the beginning because of the existence of super spreading events that can only really be explained by by that mode of transmission uh, in hong kong we've also seen transmission in quarantine hotels going from one room to another clearly through the air so if you're if one of your household members uh, is infected, then it, it's not easy to to limit the risk of transmission. But but trying to stay away from the infected person would, would be important. Having good ventilation, uh, if they can stay in their own room, and if you can avoid being in the same room at the same time, that that would that would reduce the risk for sure. Uh, in terms of the sewage surveillance, it's actually a, a really clever idea, and it's based on the the observation that people with COVID, although it's a respiratory infection, the virus does get into the 
into the stomach. For example, when you sniff and then swallow, that's potentially some of the virus getting into your stomach. And also the virus itself can can sometimes infect cells in the, the gastrointestinal tract. And so when you test the sewage of a building, if there's a person with COVID in the building, living in that building, quite often it will show up in a test of the sewage because the test can be very, very sensitive and there's potentially plenty of virus there. So in a situation, in, in a community where there's very low levels of infection, if you monitor the sewage in all the different buildings, you might actually have a chance to find cases that you wouldn't otherwise have had because maybe those people didn't even know they had COVID, they didn't have symptoms, they didn't get tested. But the sewage will, will give you a, a kind of warning that there is a case about. So in a zero COVID approach in Hong Kong, when we were at zero, actually the continuous testing of sewage samples was a really good independent verification that we really didn't have COVID cases in the community, because if we did, most likely it would show up somewhere, including in the sewage. Now, though, we have thousands of cases every day. I don't think there's so much value to the sewage surveillance other than to identify areas where maybe we didn't know there were any infections. But a, a slightly different use of the sewage surveillance could be to look at the levels of virus detections. So not only the presence or absence of virus, but in some way, the level of virus, because that's been used in other parts of the world to track the course of the epidemic, essentially looking as, as time goes on, if the levels of virus in sewage are increasing, that's consistent with more and more infections. And then hopefully, eventually, the numbers will come down again. And that means that the sewage levels, the virus levels in sewage will come down. So I think it's a, it's a clever advance to use sewage surveillance in Hong Kong. I don't think right now there's a necessity to, to do testing notices, compulsory testing notices based on sewage positives. But uh, I, I think it's a valuable component in, in surveillance of COVID. Yes, I think if we look historically, elimination strategies, so zero COVID, have been very successful, haven't they, Ben, in comparison to the suppress and lift strategies in the other parts of the world. And part of an elimination strategy is really, it's a three-pronged approach, isn't it? It's to, it's to test and to identify the cases, then to trace the contacts. Uh, and, and when we find the contacts, we isolate and quarantine. So the test, trace and isolate. And, and any system of elimination is going to be constrained by capacity in each of those levels, isn't it? You, can, you, know, you, you might be able to test 100,000 or 200,000 or maybe 5 million, like, like in China. But then you have to find all the contacts and then you have to put those people away somewhere. So at some point, when an epidemic is evolving, you reach a, a critical threshold where that system breaks down and, and you then start to move towards other strategies, don't you? And one of the other questions that we've been asked is, a, a dynamic zero COVID policy feels like it's an unsustainable policy. What would a more balanced and reasonable policy look like to maintain health and safety here in Hong Kong? Have you any thoughts on that question? Sure. Well, I, I think in, in previous podcast, David, we've discussed about the, the issue with the sustainability of the zero COVID approach. I think in the second half of 2021, actually, it was going quite well. We, we managed to keep the virus out of the community. If you remember a typical day in Hong Kong in, in the second half of 2021, there were a handful of cases each day reported in travelers in, in the quarantine hotels. And by, by keeping the virus out of the community, uh, we were able to, to minimize the amount of disruption in Hong Kong. We didn't have too much social distancing required. But 
sooner or later, we knew the virus was going to get into the community. And my concern with the sustainability was about how we would deal with an outbreak when it did occur, because I, I, I could see it was inevitable sooner or later. And right now we, we've got not, not one outbreak, but actually we've had four in, in, in the Christmas and New Year period. We had this two separate introductions of Omicron from the air crew. We had another third introduction of Omicron with the quarantine hotel case. And then separately, we had the Delta, at least one Delta. I don't even know if there's more than one Delta. And there might even be another Omicron that we don't even know because I, I haven't seen any recent sequence data. So we, we've had a number of, of introductions of the virus into the community in a similar space of time, in a short space of time. And we haven't been able to, to do a sufficient amount of uh, targeted measures. That means case finding and isolation, contact tracing and quarantine. And we haven't been able to do enough social distancing either to slow down the transmission of Omicron. It, it's just really difficult to stop Omicron. I think if we hadn't done anything, it would have been spreading faster than it is currently spreading. But it's very, very difficult to stop it with the, the measures that are currently available. So I don't see how the current outbreak can, can be stopped with the existing measures. Now, I wouldn't rule out different measures being implemented. And if in, in three months time, in six months time in Hong Kong, there's a, a different playbook, a different set of strategies available to control outbreaks, then maybe my, my assessment of the sustainability of, of the zero COVID strategy would change. But with the current tools available, I, I really don't think it's, it's easy for Hong Kong to, to sustain the zero COVID strategy. And that means looking to Singapore, the approach taken there would actually be perhaps a, an alternative to consider where they have a clear plan and a clear trajectory that they want to achieve in terms of progressively and gradually relaxing their public health measures until they get all the way back to normal without any public health measures, but making sure they don't relax too soon because there will be a surge in infections whenever they relax a measure. And so they have to, to control things carefully and time things carefully. And the key part of that, the, the absolutely essential component of, of their plan in Singapore is having a very high vaccine coverage, particularly in older adults. And they've achieved that. I think they have above 90% vaccine coverage now. We could look for the same thing. I, I don't think there's nearly as much hesitancy now as there was a couple of months ago. And, and that's without the, the vaccine pass system or, or, or potential mandates. I, I just think that we could achieve a very high level of vaccine coverage if we were deciding to follow the Singaporean model of, of a progressive relaxation of public health measures. For sure, I agree uh, that um, zero COVID is, is, is not achievable. And I, I also agree that the Singapore method of mitigation is, is, is the way to go. Moving on, we've had a number of questions uh, about the elderly. This is one example of somebody who's expressing some concerns about vaccination in the elderly. Is it too late for all the elderly who are now rushing to get vaccinated, given how long it takes for immunity to come from a vaccine? Uh, having your first dose now amid a rapidly rising exponential phase of the pandemic here in Hong Kong, is this, is this maybe going to be quite ugly for the city's elderly? We did have a few questions around vaccinations in the elderly and actually a couple of questions that really touched around this idea of, you know, look, we've given the elderly plenty of time to get vaccinated. They've had their chance. Let's just open up the protected economy. Maybe this reflects a, 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 a little bit of a misunderstanding of the of the rationale for for vaccinating from the most vulnerable down. Uh, the, the way I think about this, uh, I don't know about you, Ben, is that 
really one of the main reasons for vaccination is to reduce disease severity. And if we can reduce disease severity, we reduce the number of people who go to hospital and that takes pressure off the hospital system. Um, and so uh, the idea that, you know, metaphorically, even the most important way to protect a child is to vaccinate an older and vulnerable person because in a way, and I think this is notwithstanding the terrible uh, situation we've seen with, with with some young children recently, I think the risk to children is actually greater from a, a health system that breaks down than it is from the disease itself. And so really vaccinating the vulnerable is 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 to protect the health system. Would you would you agree with that? That's completely right. And I I think we also have to be to be careful when we think about the, the, the vaccine coverage in the elderly to think about what's what's led up to this and, and what's contributed to this situation. And I, I think it would be harsh on older people in Hong Kong to say they had their, their choice and they, they chose not to. So it's, it's, you know, too bad because the way I see it is, is that they were very, you know, the, the, the impression that, that many older people in Hong Kong would have had is that COVID doesn't really pose a risk to them because of the zero COVID policy that's, that appears to be going so well and a, appears to many people to be sustainable. Of course, you and me, David, have been talking about the, the, the dangers for some time, but I, I'm sure that many people in the community maybe didn't anticipate this situation happening. And so in a way, I, I understand why they may not have been in a rush to get vaccinated. And I I, I don't think you, you could say it's, it's their choice and they have to live with it. I think they were, you know, the, the communication could have been very different and the, the level of incentivization of vaccination could have been different. And the uh, policies that we've seen introduced very recently for older people, including the, the Yum Cha thing, you, you can't go to Yum Cha if you haven't been vaccinated, that could have been done months ago and it wasn't done. And so I, I think now the government really does have a responsibility to slow down transmission as much as possible and also to now try to catch up as much as possible with vaccinating the elderly if necessary, to divert vaccination resources away from younger people, because vaccines given to older people, we know will be able to save lives and, and be, be much more an efficient use of, of vaccines. I know just in the news at the moment is, is a situation where hospitals are, are having queues outside and patients waiting outside because because they have to admit all the mild cases and there's there's a lot now. But fairly soon, I, I think, We'll see. A, have to see a change in that policy where mild cases can isolate a home, but there'll be a different issue in hospitals where there's too many moderate or even severe cases in hospitals, and and plenty of people going to the A and E with with symptoms that require admission, and then that poses a problem, as you said, David. That poses a problem for younger people. If there's a kid who's got appendicitis and they go to the A and E department, in the past they would have been seen straight away. In, in a in a couple of weeks' time, that may not be the case or a, a middle-aged person with a heart attack or symptoms that, that might be a heart attack, again, they go to the A&E and they have to wait because the A&E is so busy with, with people with COVID. And it's really not a good situation. It can be mitigated with vaccines. And I suspect we may also see some additional social distancing behaviors, even some, some government measures for social distancing to make an effort to slow transmission down as much as possible as we approach a peak. But I don't see how we can we can get back to zero in, in the very short term. I, I don't think we would be able to to have stringent enough measures that, that that it would be possible to get back down to to zero before the epidemic takes its natural path and uh, and runs out of steam itself. Yes, and that Hong Kong University modeling study 
which looked at different scenarios, uh, it, it suggested that if we stayed at the level that we're at at the moment, the epidemic's likely to peak naturally by mid-March, um, which means we can expect to see a significant number of cases over the next uh, six to eight weeks. We, let's move on to some questions about self-isolation and hospitalization. Um, with the Hong Kong isolation beds now reaching maximum capacity, what do you recommend Hong Kong to do to ease up the burden in hospitals? If someone is taken to hospital or quarantine with mild or asymptomatic COVID, medically, is there any reason these people could not quarantine at home? We did have a number of questions around the images of overcrowded hospitals. And I think it's important to appreciate that one of the reasons the hospitals are under so much stress at the moment is because of the policy of zero COVID, which is isolating many um, uh, asymptomatic or, or, or very mildly symptomatic people in hospital. And of course, that requires nursing care and medical care. We have argued for some time, and I've written recently, that I think uh, a strategic shift is, is essential if we want to protect the hospital system to sending effectively people home or I can understand why we might want to send people into uh, accommodation which is maybe maybe better whether it's new hotels or whether it's um, newer public housing to to allow people to isolate uh, rather than be in crowded conditions in their own environment but I think I think where possible it makes much more sense to send people home to isolate at, at home and and also, as we've talked about before, and, uh, and as I've written about, I think a shift towards uh, rapid testing. And uh, certainly at the moment, and it may change depending on whether the government gives advice on what the, uh, well, they may mandate a response to a, to a rapid test. But at the moment, a PCR test in Hong Kong, it's, it's um, a legal obligation to report that, whereas a rapid test, it's not. And I'm advising my patients and we as a group are advising our patients that if they have a positive rapid test, they should isolate at home for a minimum of five days or until they have a negative rapid test, whichever is the later. And I think eventually that's going to be the way we're going to have to transition because we're not going to be able to put literally millions of people in hospital if we want to protect the health system. Does that seem a reasonable plan to you then? So I think in, in the coming probably four, six, eight weeks, the majority of the population in Hong Kong will at least have a chance to be infected. I don't know whether everyone, that many people will be infected because there's immunity, particularly from people who receive two dose or three dose of BioNTech with, a, with the most recent vaccine recently, uh, that there's some level of immunity against infection. But I, I don't think it's, it's unreasonable to predict at least 50% of the population will be infected within the next two months. That's an awful lot of infections. Many of them will not be laboratory confirmed because it's simply not possible to test and confirm that many people in a short space of time. And many people wouldn't be tested or, or there wouldn't be a need as well. But uh, we clearly even now don't have the facilities to isolate all of the mild cases. And I'm not sure that the isolating milder cases in hotels or, I don't know, university dormitories or big halls in Asia World Expo is, is ideal as a general measure. But clearly, in, in crowded households, in, in small flats with, with families, 
I, I think it would be fantastic to have an opportunity for people to isolate outside the home in those situations. But if people live by themselves or they live in, in a bigger flat, then, then home isolation would actually make a lot of sense. And I had a question for you, David. I know it's normally you asking me the questions, but is, is there anything, you, anything you'd like to say about if people are isolating at home with mild symptoms, is there anything they should watch out for that, that might lead them to, to consider going to see a doctor or going to hospital? Because I think people often don't, don't know what they should be wary of. You know, I know some people may have O2 monitors, oxygen monitors, and they, they may be familiar with, with what a number on that means. But for other people, I, all I heard from the government was, was if, if your lips turn purple, you should call an ambulance. But I don't think that's, that's maybe the exact message that, that we've seen in other parts of the world. What, what would you say, David? Yes, I think that that's right. Um, well, if we look at the evidence from international studies, about 90% of people it's from that Lancet review who, who, who get Omicron are going to be either asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic. So the yeah. first thing is to reassure people that for many of those infections in that 50% of the population or 70% of the population will, will, will not you know, make people very sick. The majority of people who do get sick, um, this is somewhere between a, a, you know, a, a mild cold and a bad flu. So runny nose, headache, maybe fatigue, um, sneezing, maybe sore throat. But for many people, it's, it's not going to be too bad in terms of uh, some people do get knocked around by it. And I've, I've, I've had a number of patients of mine who, you know, who describe, you know, you said to me, it wasn't going to be very much. Honestly, I felt like I've been hit by the side of a bus. So people do feel pretty unwell in, in, in some situations. And I guess ideally you're able, if you are feeling worried about anything, to communicate with 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 your doctor. But I mean, it, it, you know, sort of general things to think about. If you just if you're progressively feeling more unwell, if you're feeling more breathless in particular, uh, especially say having difficulty breathing and standing up and moving around, having rigors, such shaking or shivering, or a significant loss of appetite, uh, these are the, the the sort of things that we might look at, and particularly, of course. With young children, I think it's important to have a low threshold to get to get children assessed with with a fever, or, or, or especially children who have any suggestions of, uh, you know, they, if they become lethargic or that, or they're, they're not they're not interacting in their, their normal happy cells. It's a good idea to, to to get them assessed. The point you raised about pulse oximeters is is um, is, is very important. They can be really useful. I I think we've chatted about this before, Ben. My uh, oldest boys at uh, emergency intensive care doctor in East London, and they had a their admission criteria was ninety two percent saturation on air. So you know basically, if you were above ninety two percent, this is in the UK at the height of the epidemic, you would be you know you wouldn't be admitted. And uh, we'd normally say the oxygen saturation should be above ninety five percent, and and if it's you know, if it's between ninety-two and ninety-five percent, it may it may go up or, or down over time. So you could that's the, the sort of middle ground where you want to check about around it. So some smartwatches have have uh, uh, oxygen um, monitors on them, and um, you, you know you, you can you can buy. We have various. We use these in our practice when we assess patients, and in, in hospitals when we assess patients. So there are there are objective measures that can be useful. And, and in an ideal situation, really, you'd want to provide telephone support to people. And, and, I, and I know the government has set up 
uh, clinics um, that, 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 that people can go to. Um, and hopefully over the next week or two, the messaging mm-hmm. around those will become a little bit more consistent because I know the first messaging was, you, you know, you just come to the clinic if you're feeling unwell. But ideally what we'd like to see would be some formal public communication to explain the range of normals and to give some advice which can be dealt with online or, or, or by telephone. Certainly within our own practice, we have a, we have teleconsults and telemedicine consults and we're going to be available at all times. If, if we're not in the hospital, I, I envisage, I've spoken to quite a number of my colleagues, I mean, a lot, a lot of us consider that we're likely to be volunteering in the hospitals over the next few weeks because I, I think things are probably going to get pretty hectic, to be honest. Anyway, sorry, that's the answer to that question. Um, in terms of um, going back, to, going back to questions for you, the um, yep. uh, probably the most common series of questions that that we were asked really related around childhood vaccination. And I know, you know, you and I have discussed this a, a little bit, haven't we? Um, I know you've you've, you've you know been for some time really quite keen on the idea of vaccinating children and uh, as, as we talked about last time of the time before the evidence is on unquestionably accumulating both of safety and efficiency i had a couple of questions one was particularly about the, the difference of dose and age difference and why we have pediatric specific pediatric samples and, and adult samples and whether it's safe to divide them up um anyway let's have a listen well, my questions about dosages for biontech uh, five to eleven year olds are recommended a dose of uh, about a third of a shot, uh, but my 12-year-old has recommended a full dose. Just wondering whether you can tell me how they determine uh, that, realising that it needs to be a cutoff at some stage. Thank you. For children who are not yet eligible for vaccines in Hong Kong, what do we know about the long-term effects of COVID on their health? Does the variant that they catch matter? For example, do we know whether the long-term effects may be less severe for the Omicron variant as compared to, say, the Delta variant. What are the known benefits and risks to a child aged under 12 for taking the vaccine, focusing mainly on the impact to the child rather than to Hong Kong's public health? I know you, you knew a little bit about this, Spencer. Could you explain that? Yeah, with the BioNTech vaccine, there's a different dose for children 5 to 11 years of age uh, compared to the full dose that's given to, to adults and also adolescents 12 to 17 years of age. And I think if BioNTech and, and, and Fosun Pharma and Pfizer were looking again at, at the use of vaccines in the age group of 12 to 17, they may well they may well think about using a slightly different dose because we have a one-third dose for children 5 to 11, which makes a lot of sense because the immune response is still very good with that one-third dose. And then for adults, it's a full dose. I, I would imagine with adolescents, the optimal might actually be somewhere in between maybe a one half or two thirds of a dose. But because of the way the trials were done, because of the way the vaccines were approved, then we give a full dose to the to the adolescents 12 to, to 17 years of age. And with the second dose, when the second dose is given uh, maybe three to four weeks after the first dose, we did see in Hong Kong with the BioNTech vaccine uh, a number of cases of myocarditis, and these have been reported elsewhere in the world. And now that we've spaced out the second doses to, I think, a 12-week interval, uh, we don't see myocarditis much anymore. So that's that's a really very reassuring. 
And in younger children, I, I, I doubt there'll be any issue with myocarditis. We'll, we'll keep a close eye on it. But it looks like the BioNTech vaccine is, is a very good choice for children aged 5 to 11. And then, of course, the sign of our vaccine is now going all the way down to age 3. We know that children in the past have been less susceptible to getting COVID, and COVID tends to be milder when, when they do get it. Now with Omicron, it seems like that, that difference in susceptibility has, has disappeared. And now children are just as susceptible to Omicron as, as anyone else. And there has actually been a lot of infections in, in children in the last few weeks with Omicron. Uh, the severity is still much lower in, in children than it, in is, than it is in adults. And it, it's really, really sad to, to hear about the, the two deaths so far in, in young children, age four and age three. And, and for sure, if we provide vaccines to, to, to children all the way down to age three, it will definitely be able to reduce the the, the potential for, for a child getting severe disease, which is already very low, but it would make it very, very low, very, very, very rare. So I, I'm, I'm certainly, you know, encourage parents to think about getting their children vaccinated. But I would have to say on the public health side that, that vaccination of older adults would, would have to be the priority. And if there's, you know, if there's an issue with insufficient vaccine supplies or insufficient doses or insufficient vaccinators in general, then I, I would certainly suggest giving priority to older people, especially for their first dose. But right now we don't have that shortage of vaccine supplies. We only have a, an issue with the bookings where there's too much demand for bookings suddenly. But I, I think it's really f fantastic that we do have vaccines available for COVID. We have to remember this is only two years into the pandemic and um, and many parts of the world have have had vaccines for a year, including Hong Kong. And that's, a, that's really a, a fantastic achievement uh, for science to have vaccines available and, and, and they clearly have an enormous impact uh, on the pandemic. Yes, for sure. I, I, I was actually thinking about this early today. I mean, I qualified over 30 years ago now. I'm sure that this is the single greatest advance of of my medical career. And and I was trying to think of a comparison. And basically, when I started doing my house calls, even as a as a younger family doctor, I was uh, I was driving around with a mobile telephone that was the size of a house brick. So there's been a lot of changes in that in my career. And I think this has been the, the, the biggest, the vaccination has truly been extraordinary. In some ways people take it for granted, but it is an, an extraordinary achievement to get it rolled out so quickly. One of the questions around children, actually a few people asked a very similar question um, framed in slightly different ways, which is, if maybe I've picked this one, what's the risk that in the long term children in Hong Kong are going to be more susceptible to severe illness from non-COVID pathogens due to the sustained lack of exposure to pathogens after such prolonged periods of finishing isolation? And a couple of other people frame that slightly differently and were asking, are children more vulnerable to COVID because they've been sort of you know wearing masks and, and, and isolated for the time? You've got real expertise in this from your sort of influence. It really is one of the world's authorities on this plan. What, what's your feeling on um, on immunity and risk of other infections? That's right, David. Uh, in, in the past two years, children and also adults in Hong Kong have had far fewer coughs and colds than, than ordinarily we would have expected because there hasn't been that much going around. And in September of 2020 and also September 2021, when schools went back, very soon after schools went back both times, we saw surges in common cold infections with rhinoviruses, including some that were, were more severe than usual. Uh, there's more hospitalizations, for example, than, than we'd normally expect. And that's an indication of the, the loss of immunity because 
we haven't had those coughs and colds so much. Uh, once things get back to normal eventually, then it only takes a year or two of, of getting coughs and colds again for the immunity to get back to where it was. It's not a long-term problem. It's, it's just a short-term issue that we've lost that in immunity temporarily. As for COVID, I, there's not much evidence of, of immunity carrying across from, from different infections from one to the other, except perhaps in, in a very short term when you recover from one cough or cold you most likely wouldn't get another one straight away unless you're very unlucky because you've got some kind of immunity. Your body's still in the, the infection fighting mode, I suppose you could say. So we, we've documented in Hong Kong evidence of that kind of temporary immunity. But I, I don't think there's any indication that children in Hong Kong would be more vulnerable to, say, COVID because they haven't had other common cold infections in the last two years. That that wouldn't be anything anything we'd expect. But certainly children in Hong Kong right now are more vulnerable to coughs and colds in general because they haven't had them before. And um, if and when schools go back, I'm sure we'll have another surge in, in common cold infections as a consequence of that, because when the when there's a loss of immunity, that, that means when children start mixing again, you, you do see surges in infections. Yes, uh, rather, it's a slightly different question, but another ch- for, for children, um, somebody had asked, what about children who aren't eligible for vaccines in Hong Kong? Do we know about the long-term effects of COVID on their health and does the variant that they catch matter? That's right, David. And, and it's not only children. There's also some adults in Hong Kong who can't receive vaccination for, for one reason or another. Um, and we know that for people who get COVID, even people with conditions that preclude vaccination, it would typically be very, very mild. They'll be unlucky to get a more severe disease with COVID or, or they'll be unlucky to, to develop long COVID or, or one of the components of long COVID, but, but it may happen. As for the particular variants that, that affect that, I, I'm not sure if there's much evidence yet, particularly on Omicron because it's so new, but there's no reason to suspect that it would be particularly different to the previous variants. And that does lead to a question about how the community responds to, to residual risk whether it's in children and in schools or in the general community. Here in the UK, I'm just visiting the UK at the moment. I, I saw on the evening news the other day uh, an interview with a lady who has an immunocompromising condition and can't be vaccinated. And she was upset that the mask mandate in the UK has now been dropped because she feels that she can't leave home anymore because people around her are not wearing masks and that makes her vulnerable to getting COVID. And so her argument was that the mask mandate, I think her argument was that the mask mandate should be now perpetual in order to protect her and others in her situation from getting COVID. And I think that's a a question which has to be discussed in schools. If there are children around who are vulnerable, if there are children who can't be vaccinated, would it be important to to perpetually require some of the measures that we are currently using with COVID, like masking and physical distancing and, and ventilation and so on? Or is there a point at which we, we have to draw a line and, and aim to relax many of these measures? And I don't think it's an easy decision because there will be consequences either way. I'm not, not advocating for, for keeping the measures in perpetuity. I'm simply making the observation that there will be people who would prefer those measures to be kept in perpetuity. Yes, there are going to be many dilemmas balancing the risks and the costs and the benefits of public health interventions with those of the individuals in the population, aren't there? And I guess one of the most important of those is going to be schools. And one of the most common questions, when are the schools going to open, Ben? Well, you know, I I feel like actually if we had rapid tests available, widely available in, in the community, 
we could think about reopening schools now and use rapid tests as a way to inform risk. And the way it would happen, I, I would suggest, is that we say all schools can go back, but every kid has got to do a rapid test every morning before they go to school. And obviously, if it's positive, they have to isolate at home and follow the isolation rules. But as long as the rapid test is negative, they can go to school. Uh, maybe you could do half-day schooling as, as a risk mitigation measure, particularly now with, with a, a lot of COVID in the community. But um, I, I don't think it's good for children that schools are closed for so long. And, and, and it looks to me like schools will stay closed for quite some time. And, and that's not good for children's education. It's not good for their development, for their health the physical health and the mental health. And don't don't forget about physical health. Uh, I know a child with a, a dislocated kneecap because they haven't done any PE for the last two years and their muscles got you know deteriorated. And, and unfortunately, it, it was easy for them to dislocate their kneecap, which, which would ordinarily not have been a risk. And I, I've seen studies in the UK where childhood obesity is on the rise because children have, have missed school and, and been inactive. I'm sure that that would be an issue in Hong Kong if we collected the data. I'm sure we'd we'd probably find something similar. So so the question is, when will schools go back? My suspicion is they, they, they may not go back until September. But my advice would actually be that schools could reopen anytime as long as we can get rapid tests and use them to inform risk and then safely reopen schools and have children going back to in-person school just with, with policies to, to make sure that the risk is, is kept to an acceptably low level. Yes, you mentioned physical health there, and I guess the other area clearly is, is, is mental health. We did have a few questions around mental health, one in particular asking a good question for me. How do you stay informed and up-to-date without becoming without overwhelmed? Without becoming overwhelmed with all the so news, negative. which appears so negative. I mean, clearly ignoring the news and announcements is not an option, but there's a risk that if you're trying to stay up and up-to-date by reading the news and the announcements, that it drives you into a, um, a negative place. So I'm interested in terms of the recommendation is how people should stay informed, um, particularly during this fifth wave. We, we did produce a few podcasts on this, actually, and uh, some of my colleagues in the, uh, the psychologists have been working on it, on it a lot. I know they, they have been very busy. I think in my experience, individuals have different degrees of tolerance of uncertainty. And, and, and for some people who are very uncertain and, 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 and get upset with a lot of change, it can be best maybe even to detach from news and media and focus on more positive things. This is a time for exercise, meditation, mindfulness. If you are going to seek out resources for information, maybe try to keep them limited to a few trusted sites that you know will give you a balanced perspective rather than continually searching you know, Facebook or Twitter or, or whatever the social media forms may be. I think in general, in, in my experience, it's about the things that give you the greatest sense of control. For some people, understanding what's going on and, 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 and getting down into the, the weeds of the data, so to speak, that's the thing that gives them the sense of control over the process. And so it's quite an individual thing, I, I find. In, in, in my sort of day job, I, I deal with a lot of mental health issues and I often think that stress, distress, depression, anxiety are fundamentally at their core about lack of control and uncertainty. So a situation like COVID with, with, with change, totally unpredictable events taking place outside of our control is, is, is a very stressful thing. And it's not helped by communication, which is 
in some degree conflicted or changing or, 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 or appears not to necessarily be the most rational. Have you got any thoughts about how, how, how to stay how to stay mentally healthy during a pandemic. Um, you've, you've talked about mental health before, but Ben, haven't you? It's something that concerns you, I know. It's something that concerns me a lot. I'm not an expert on, on mental health, I have to say, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not maybe the right person to talk about to about all of the issues, but certainly I, I know um, a lot of my colleagues are really struggling for, for various reasons. It's uh, It's been a really hectic time uh, for, for two years already, and then, my students and my colleagues, many of them want to visit their friends and family overseas and, and maybe are unable to because of the travel measures or if they do go, it, it's not easy to get back. And so that for, for a lot of reasons, I, I, I'm really concerned about the sustainability of zero COVID because the, the mental health of the, of the community is something that's really difficult to, to measure, but it will have enormous implications if the burnouts increase and the, the stress levels increase and the anxiety levels increase. It has all kinds of implications that I don't think we measure. Whenever we, we typically talk about the advantages and disadvantages of zero COVID, it's framed in terms of numbers of deaths. And, and there's very little consideration given to, to the other downstream consequences of a policy, a set of policies, for example, with, with zero COVID, saying that, okay, if we do that, then schools are going to be closed periodically and people are going to be working at home with their families in small flats. And, and as a result of that, we're going to see uh, deterioration of physical health, deterioration of mental health, and the downstream consequences in the minority of cases, perhaps suicides and, and, and other issues as well. And, and so I, I'm really very concerned about it. And that's one of the reasons that, that makes me tend towards the, you know, the alternative to zero COVID, which is is um is trying to return to normal and relax the public health measures and, and try to get life in the community back back to normal as much as possible but we've got to deal with the, with the current outbreak first and i think it's going to get worse before it gets better at the moment with the fifth wave yes well the modeling study suggested that using that under current social distancing measures we might expect around about a thousand deaths in hong kong by June and I'm not in any way belittling the importance of COVID, not at all, but understanding mortality rates requires context and um, you mentioned suicide there. I mean, in 2003, uh, during the SARS, um, the year of the SARS um, epidemic, it was the highest suicide rate in Hong Kong, we had over 1,200 suicides in comparison to that 1,000 deaths. So just to give some sort of context in terms of um, mortality rates that we get in Hong Kong in a, in a normal year. So we certainly have to look at the mental health of the population, um, the socioeconomic impact on, on the population. And it's been very interesting getting a whole series of questions. Thank you to our listeners who have Actually, really, lots and lots of, of questions. Apologies for those that we couldn't address. In some ways, you and I have been sort of saying the same thing for months now. And so maybe it's nice to be able to say something different. And At least one way to look forwards is that we have a, a situation where it maybe is not what we would have chosen in that we would have preferred to have planned to have moved to mitigation. But I think we are inevitably 
we may not yet have accepted that we are there, but I think in, in, in all but name, Hong Kong is now in a stage of mitigation and, and let's hope that we can focus on minimizing the harm to the population as this wave burns through over the next two months. Um, and that being the case, there is, of course, looking forwards positively, the opportunity to think in terms of May and June, where we will be over, hopefully, the wave of, of, of Omicron. And we can start to begin to look forward to some degree of normality, whatever that may be. So thank you very much for, yet again, um, giving us the benefit of your expertise and um, look forward to catching up, maybe when you'll be back in Hong Kong. Great, yeah, happy to talk. If you have a question you'd like to put to Dr. Owens or Professor Cowling, then please do send us an email or a voice memo to podcasts at punchpresentations.com and we'll do our very best to address the issues you raised in the next episode. If you would like further information, advice and support on the topics raised in this episode, then please do visit our website at www.otmp.com where you can also leave your questions in our comments box. And lastly, to help us reach as many people who may well be looking for support, please feel free to like, comment on and share this episode. Thank you for your support and thanks for listening.